From the late 18th century to the coming of the First World War, European spa towns grew along with the bourgeoisie who patronized them, becoming glamorous resorts as well as retreats for the sick. These distinctive communities and the fascination they exercised for generations of authors are featured this week on Footnoting History. Hello and welcome to Footnoting History. I'm Lucy, and this week I'll be discussing the history of spa towns and how the practice of taking the waters developed as health cure and leisure activity. Increasingly, over the course of the 19th century, Europe's bourgeoisie looked to mineral waters, sipped, bathed in, and showered in, as treatment for health problems and a cure for ennui. The architecture and economy of spa towns developed accordingly, creating an atmosphere for international communities to mingle socially, consume culture, and display their wealth. Thermal springs are, of course, as old as the earth itself, and bathing in them and drinking from them was no novelty at the turn of the 19th century. The ways in which these practices were organized, however, as well as the people who practiced them, were new. A regimen of medically supervised bathing was known to the aristocracies of the Ancien Régime, but the growth in the social and economic power of the middle classes brought with it new possibilities that spa investors were quick to notice and capitalize on. The expansion of spa facilities and the marketing for them took place all over Europe, in places often named after the waters, from England's Bath to Germany's numerous Baden, Bad Kreuznach, Bad Nauheim, Wiesbaden, and of course the opulent Baden-Baden. This is, too, where seltzer water gets its name, although the waters of Niederselzer in Germany, as remarked by William Saunders in 1800, were, quote, to the tongue, somewhat pungent, unquote. Today, the bottled waters of Evian and Vitel perpetuate the reputations of French spa towns far beyond the one-time clientele of their luxurious spas. The doctors of early 19th century Europe prescribed waters as a panacea, from cold baths to hot showers, all in the context of the growing spa towns medically supervised. Medical brochures issued by spa doctors came with comprehensive lists of symptoms and the treatments that could be offered for them, from the powerful waters of wherever they were employed, often praised as superior through the combination of their minerals or the strength of their springs to similar towns in different places. A typical title from 1799, A Treatise on the Mineral Waters of Harrogate, containing the history of these waters, their chemical analysis, medicinal properties, and plain directions for their use. Chapters on cold bathing and drinking the mineral waters were also added to popular texts on domestic medicine. Increasingly, spa buildings were designed to offer their prosperous clientele not only healthful experiences, but also the privacy and luxury to which Europe's middle classes were rapidly becoming accustomed. Prescriptions for spa treatments were given to those of all stations, but poorer patients were, increasingly over the course of the 19th century, assigned to different and separate facilities than the prosperous visitors come to recover their health and enjoy their leisure. Humorists of the 19th century made much of the contrast between the spa as cure and the spa town as diversion. Historians of the 20th century, similarly, devoted much time to this apparent paradox, turning in recent years to studying how these elements of the spa experience, baths so rigorous that they were known as the showers of hell, and a round of entertainments stretching from dances to the opera, 
worked together and were sought out together by Europe's titled families and elegant bourgeoisie. The spa culture of the 19th century was a self-perpetuating success. The more wealthy visitors chose to stay there, the more opulent facilities were constructed to receive them, and materials from picture postcards to reproduced guest registers signed by titled guests, and even by royal ones, testified to the desirability of spending a week or three among the Georgian promenades of Bath, the mountain walks of Bad Kissingen, or by the lake in Aix-les-Bains. Whether it was a week, or three, or six that most people spent in spa towns is difficult to assess, as most spas kept only rough guides to how long their guests stayed, for instance, less or more than a week. Some mid-century statistics from Austria show an average stay of 28 days, but it's difficult to tell what balance of short, tourist-style visits and semi-permanent guests this reflects. Increasingly, spa towns sought to offer what we might call an all-inclusive package. Wiesbaden, a wealthy town on the Rhine, patronized by an international clientele, and no less a personage than Emperor Wilhelm II, who called it the most beautiful spa town in Europe, may provide an example. Wiesbaden's mineral waters, in use for medicinal purposes since at least the Middle Ages, were enclosed in elegant little neoclassical temples, in enormous neo-baroque complexes, in baths adorned with Art Nouveau mosaics. Visitors could follow guidebooks around churches and museums, or follow their own inclinations along broad avenues and into shops. The spa house itself contained concert halls and a casino, and adjoined a garden with a bandstand for the orchestra, a lake for rowing, and paths for wandering. An enclosed arcade enabled wandering in the rain, too, and conveniently adjoined the theatre where opera performances were given. Satirists and caricaturists made much of the availability of such diverse diversions. On first arriving in a spa town, they said, you may see pale-faced men and women being carried about in bath chairs from the spa to the hotel and fear for their lives, but don't worry, they'll be dancing the night away in the assembly rooms soon enough. Jane Austen was famously acerbic on the subject of false invalids, from Mrs. Bennet, who claims that a little sea-bathing in fashionable Brighton would set her health up forever, to the ridiculous Sir Walter Elliot, who retires to Bath with nothing ailing him except vanity and profligacy. Alongside Sir Walter, though, we also find the much more amiable Admiral Croft, who comes to Bath to have his gout treated. Humour was not the only possibility found by novelists in the observation of spa towns. In the encounter of guests freed from the scrutiny of their ordinary social circles lay the possibility for drama and even for scandal. From Austen's adventure-seeking Catherine Morland, who goes to, of course, Bath and encounters socialites and social climbers, to the international dysfunctional constellations of men and women in Dostoevsky's The Gambler or Ford Maddox Ford's The Good Soldier, the heroes and heroines and antiheroes of Europe's novels found their way to spa towns. The flirtations of garden walks, humiliations of gambling tables, and scandals of assembly rooms appear, however, to largely have been confined to novels. Few spa towns appear to have acquired, at least, a reputation for sex and scandal. Dostoevsky, in writing, may have been guided by his own experience of gambling in Europe's spas, first in Wiesbaden, then frequently in Bad Homburg and Baden-Baden. The heightened emotional climate of the casino and the ballroom, while heady, appears to have led to ruin far more in fiction than in fact. 
In varying proportions, the popularity of spas from Bath to Budapest rose and rose during the last decades of the 19th century, with the lakes and mountains of Central Europe, from southern Germany to the Austrian Tyrol, in what is now northern Italy, enjoying special popularity. A pamphlet for the Bavarian resort in Bad Kissingen, published in 1875 by the spa doctor, offers an example of how the delights of spas were advertised. Great progress, writes the doctor, has been made in the whole field of medicine, and the therapeutics of baths have followed the lead and have been perfected up to the clinical level of the other practical departments of medical science. The position occupied by baths in the field of therapeutics has altered and no longer depends on empiricism, but on the teachings of pathological anatomy and physiological chemistry. Unquote. In this excited panegyric, one can sense the unspoken competition with which baths suddenly had to deal. Amid the many medical advances and new experiments of the latter 19th century, baths had to compete in a much more active medical marketplace. But spa towns still boasted unique attractions. In view of the modern intercourse of nations, writes Dr. Stöhr, extending over the whole world, we consider it necessary, by any means possible, to bring to the knowledge of mankind what is really good and excellent. And this includes, of course, kissing it. He writes that the town can boast that Prince Bismarck is among its, quote, honorary citizens or guests, as well as enjoying a glorious past extending over centuries and a present reputation resting on the most solid grounds. And in his pamphlet, he continues through various sections to extol not only the medical values of the baths, but the uniquely lovely natural situation of the town within the mountains of Upper Bavaria. The coming of the First World War put an abrupt end to the meeting of Europe's international elites at these fashionable resorts, and indeed altered the lifestyle of which the weeks at the spa made a part. A brief period of recovery between the wars did not return the spas to anything like their former brilliance. Many, however, eventually found a renaissance in the later 20th century, catering to the tourist trade. Contemporary travellers, far less elite than those of previous eras, can spend a day in the Baroque splendours of old baths, with no 19th-century doctors to warn, as many of them did, against simply wallowing in the pleasures of warm water, or, for a small fee or none at all, dip cups into the mineral waters and find out for themselves whether or not they are pungent to the tongue. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. See you next week.